The future of healthcare will be shaped through data and technology. In a world that's brimming with digital advancements, the healthcare sector is facing a tricky paradox. The potential of analytics and interoperability is huge, but the journey ahead is challenging. In this episode on the podcast, we feature a live stream conversation that I had with Andrew Aho from Intersystems and Robbie Carp, the CEO of Fluffy Spider Technologies and a board member for HL7 Australia. We had a conversation as a live virtual event recently and had hundreds of attendees across LinkedIn and YouTube help shape the discussion in real time. If you're keen to check out these live recordings in the future, make sure you're subscribed and following us on LinkedIn and YouTube and our other social medias so you don't miss the next one. In this episode, you'll hear me speak with Andrew and Robbie as we unpack the findings of the latest state of analytics and interoperability study from Intersystems and navigate through the complexities of data-driven healthcare transformation. And in this episode, we talk about why some healthcare leaders still hesitate to fully trust their data. How can the industry bridge the gap between clinical needs and administrative efficiencies? And is the dream of seamless data integration and healthcare a distant reality? Or are we on the cusp of a breakthrough? Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it up. Welcome to Talking Health Tech, featuring content and community about technology and healthcare. We acknowledge the traditional owners of lands these conversations were recorded and pay respect to elders past and present. Between now and the end of June, we're conducting the 2024 Talking Health Tech audience survey. This helps us prioritize content, hone in key messages, and refine the show to make it even better. We also want to understand who the biggest cohorts of our audience are. So I'd love for you to take five or ten minutes to have your say and complete the survey. Everyone who completes it goes in the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of THT Plus membership credits to put towards a membership for yourself as an individual or to help get the word out about your company. The link to complete the survey is in the show notes of this episode or just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey. So we're here live, going live across LinkedIn and YouTube here on Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Looking here, I can see some people are already arriving and make sure you leave a, a question and a comment in the chat so that we know that you're here. Whatever platform you're on, we can see those comments coming up as we go through this conversation today because we've got a panel with us and a, a small panel, a panelette, is that the term? I'm not sure if that's a correct term, but uh, of of people that I'll get to introduce yourselves first. We've got Robbie from Fluffy Spider Technology and Andrew from Intersystems. Thanks for joining, gents. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And so for those that don't know you, firstly, I might get you, Andrew, to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks. Uh, Very good to be here. So Andrew Aho, uh, I'm the Regional Director for Data Platforms at Intersystems. Uh, I've been around uh, AI, data, analytics, uh, for probably a few too many years um, that I preferred to uh, to let on, but certainly love this area of technology and a uh, real pleasure to be here on your uh, show today. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. And Robbie? Um, so I'm Robbie Karp, CEO of Fluffy Spider Technologies. We specialise in interoperability solutions. We're inter-systems partners. 
I'm also on the board of directors to HL7 Australia, as well as some other um, Australian startups and medtech companies. Excellent. Thank you. And look, we can see those comments coming through on the chat here as well. G'day, Michelle, joining on LinkedIn if you're on YouTube. And I believe it's also going out on Facebook as well. So really pushing the boundaries of a live conversation here with people in person. And it's great, too, to be able to do it because we've got here the... Um, the State of Analytics and Interoperability Study. This is the second one, I believe, that InterSystems uh, have done, titled Healthcare Organisations Data Journey, The Way Forward. And Andrew, I might get you firstly to set the scene a little bit more about this particular study and uh, and the, the, the survey and the, the results that have come out. Like, what are we looking at here? Yeah, sure. So um, it's a the second year, as you said. We um, the year before last, we were having a look at um, our customers routinely ask us about how to get more out of their uh, data um, for various purposes, analytics being one of them. Um, and whilst we helped with that, we were trying to help provide some context as to what healthcare executives are seeing and finding and what, what the challenges might be as to, you know, how do you actually get more out of your information? Um, so we partnered up with a research partner, Ecosystem, um, and they conducted this research. Uh, the first year was last year, and then the second round has been this year. So it covers 240-odd uh, um, uh, people who have now responded, healthcare executives. It is um, predominantly hospital-focused, but there is a good mix of different settings there. So uh, I think the majority is public uh, hospitals, but there's a good number of private, and they also talk to the regional as well as the metro um, centres as well. Yeah. Particularly in Australia? Uh, Australia and New Zealand. Australia and yes, New Zealand, right. yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, amazing. So, look, I came to, to understand the, you know, what some of these insights are. And I remember we've spoken about, you know, this study, uh, the, the, the research that was done um, last year as well, this being the second one. And, and one thing that uh, did, um, you know, pique my interest first, and it's kind of come through here too, is, is around this point of, trust that healthcare leaders have in data and uh it, it looking here at, at some of the the outcomes um you know a, a lot of uh, nearly half around half of healthcare leaders surveyed don't fully trust their data but only 35 percent of organizations have a holistic data strategy to address this like this disconnect between um you know why organizations don't trust data like trust the data that they've got and and the investment that's needed into the infrastructure walk me through some of the thinking on what, what might be happening there yeah sure well look uh, trusts and uh, data quality obviously go uh, hand in hand and it's interesting because the last uh, few days i've been at a conference all about ai in in healthcare mm. uh, and so the conversation there is very much because you know ai is in every nearly every conversation at the moment uh, how do we have um, safe, secure, private um, use of, of AI and what are the, you know, the government's uh, governance implications, ethics, explainability and all the other parts that go into having some kind of AI that you can, you can trust. And, and to me, um, you can have all of that uh, in the world, but if you haven't got uh, high quality data that's trusted, mm. the, the models are only going to give you um, so much in return. Um, so obviously this is a key uh, issue. And, and as you mentioned, um, the, the research does highlight that only uh, a proportion, 35%, have a holistic data strategy. And so in that holistic data strategy, those organisations are thinking about those things, governance, data literacy, how do we get uh, people to understand 
utilize um, the data more, which leads to higher quality data and higher quality you know, um, understanding, mm. uh, which does lead in turn to trust of the data. Uh, we have found that in the other organizations that don't have this holistic data strategy, um, a lot of them are thinking about a single repository. That's their data strategy. Let's all get let's get the information into just one place. Mm. Uh, or how do we increase you know, the availability of data so it's more um, real time? So um, I think the, the idea is to try and move towards this uh, more of a holistic strategy where we think about data in every part of our business and how does that actually help us um, to grow and to change and to improve clinical care and outcomes. Um, you also mentioned about the disconnect. So that was another key finding in the, in the research, mm. which is whilst these healthcare executives really do want to see um, more of their investments directed towards clinical outcomes, uh, patient outcomes, uh, patient experience, and probably third on the list is then cost optimization. Where the money actually ends up is um, in in complying with government mandates. Yeah, right. Right, and so that's a that's one of the main reasons why um, these investments aren't leading to that that higher quality data mm. and more cohesive strategies. But um, I think as we go through other parts of the survey, there are other reasons behind this as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And there's all those important things like the the, the government mandates or what um, uh, you know. Uh, the, the ticket to play type stuff, you've got to get out of the gate and meet those minimum requirements. But if they're not, um, uh, you know, there's all these extra opportunities too. And I think in the clinical setting, you've got both, you know, as you mentioned too, and I can see some of it here, improved um, patient outcomes as one and the, 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 the clinical objectives that, that exist there, um, identify risks and reduce errors but and improve patient outcomes. But but also from an administrative side, there's there's a lot of the, the, the costs involved within the healthcare system. And I'd imagine that there's some priorities there around from the administrative perspective of reducing those costs and, and optimising processes. Is the, Sometimes these two things can be, you know, um, in, in competition with each other or, or, or quite, quite um, uh, different kind of priorities. How do you find, um, you know, that, in looking through some of these responses and, and reflecting on that, how those two kind of competing demands might work with each other. Yeah, look, I think the um, there's a lot to to be said on that particular topic. Um, there has been and will continue to be friction around should we spend the investment towards the best patient outcomes? Um, and you know, I. I can understand the clinician point of view that that is unequivocal. Obviously, if we can improve patient outcomes, it's something we can do. Mm. Uh, but I think there's an argument to be made, and I think we're seeing um, um, kind of a, a, a virtuous cycle where if you can justify the, the the improvement or the reduction in costs also with clinical benefits, um, then that can help release uh, future funding for more clinical improvements, mm. right? So I think the two worlds can um, live together. In fact, I was talking with a um, CMO uh, recently who shared with me that fiscal uh, leadership is now becoming as important to um, the CMI, uh, CMO and CMIO role as clinical leadership. So I think this is this is changing, and 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 we are seeing. Uh, we have a partner here uh, in Australia called Miris. Um, they are helping us to bring um, uh, employment and staffing costs to theatre planning. Um, and that really does help give organisations a view, not only kind of how they're allocating resources, but what the impact of those costs will be. Mm. Um, now, it can be framed in the light of helping to reduce clinician burnout because you're looking at things like overtime and reducing that. Um, so it does have some clinical outcomes. But I think mixing these two worlds 
um, uh, in a clever way uh, is going to be more of what we'll see in the future. Yeah. I guess building on that too. So if yeah, I could just interject. Me. Yeah. The, the thing we're seeing, um, so I think that's, that's correct, but sometimes it's really difficult to really measure what the benefits are financially. Mm. So, so I was talking to um, an IT director for a brand new hospital last week, and it's a day surgery place. It's, it's you know, nobody's sleeping there. But they're, they're actually going to be implementing paper-based systems for everything besides their PaaS, mm. okay, and, uh, you know, the actual machinery. Because for them, they, they can't see the benefits, uh, the long-term benefit of implementing anything besides that. It's expensive. So, um, you know, they really need to be able to see what the, you know, what those costs are, how the overall cost is going to be brought down. So I think yep. what you're saying is correct. You know, so we need to see how it all sort of bundles together, you know, in the future. Absolutely. It is interesting that, that paper is very much part of um, the data strategy, but um, mm. interesting to hear that it's part of people's moving forward I know. Um, strategy. And this is a well, Greenfields, right? yeah. did I mention, this is a Greenfields hospital. So they have the right. opportunity to start from scratch. Well, that's interesting in itself, isn't it? I think about the, you know, building on that around the business case, Robbie, of, of um, you know, implementing, um, you know, key elements of, of this holistic data strategy with interoperability and, and these pathways forward. Even in these examples of, um, you know, greenfield sites, the opportunity to build something from, from, from scratch, you know, you've, you need to be able to demonstrate this business case to to make investments into things beyond just bits of paper to to meet the minimum requirements. Talk, talk me through that. Well, um, I think what's really important to note, and, and it should be obvious, but interoperability and the analytics they're, they're not uh, they're not in any way at odds. They actually work towards the same purpose. Mm. You you can't do the analytics if you don't have access to the data, which is facilitated by interoperability. Mm. Yes. So in a, in a couple of examples, um, you know, there's one company that we're working with that um, they get real-time uh, analytics, they get real-time messaging from uh, beds, uh, admissions, dis discharges. They use that to, in real-time, optimise workflows in the hospital command and control centre to, you know, work out where the beds should go and that sort of thing. So there's a case where your messaging is facilitating real-time um, analytics and optimization. In another case, um, we, we're working with a company that has developed a healthcare product for consumers. And so it's, it's something that will uh, you know, sit on a, a person's skin and monitor some, some um, you know, signs and put that via their cloud into an EMR. So, in, in, and so the outcome there is by able to by being able to analyze the data, you optimize the outcome for the patient. Mm. So and, and so I'm using those two examples because in one case we're um, writing into an EMR, in another you know by messaging interoperability. In another case we're reading from an EMR. Both of those things need to be done in order to um, you know optimize the overall process. Mm. I mean the 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 thing about value-based care is that you can um, achieve improvements in the patient's overall health care by making the measurements, by improving every step of the way. Mm. The, the, the more you do that, the less a patient is in hospital. 
you know. And so the whole process is optimised, the costs are reduced. Mm. You need to look at it as an overall uh, overarching strategy. Yeah, it's very, very true. The um, value-based care, I think, is a key part of this. And there are some uh, countries around the world that are really taking that very seriously now. And, and, and I, I believe we'll see more of that here. And um, you know, it forces you to look at multiple um, aspects of, of how care is measured and, and what quality and um, you know, the fiscal side of things are. And look, we've got a few uh, examples um, which are sort of heading in that direction. But to come back to the justification and the business case, uh, for doing these sorts of things, you know, um, that medical device integration, one, Robbie, we've talked about yeah. uh, a lot. Uh, we do have a, uh, uh, a project here in New South Wales where they're connecting up medical devices, bedside uh, monitors in the ED and um, directing that information through to the EMR. There's a bit of workflow in the middle so that uh, clinicians can approve it. It doesn't necessarily automatically go through, although in some cases it does. Um, but that has been able to be justified on, again, reducing um, clinician burnout because what were they doing before? Mm. Manually writing down the results mm. and transcribing them or you know, putting them and, in. And the there are mistakes in those processes as well, by the way. Absolutely. And if you yeah. digitise those things, those mistakes go away. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's um, that, that can be really powerful even before you start thinking about um, the, uh, you know, the AI or the ML implications and mm. what you might do in terms of clinical alerting um, um, you know, deterioration, um, those types of things to avoid more patient uh, harm with the day later on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to pause for a second here because um, despite the fancy cameras and the real-time setting, we are indeed live and I can see those comments coming through on, on LinkedIn and YouTube here. You know, Charles summarised it in one sentence there of uh, you can only analyse the data you can access and that ties in nicely with, um, you know, what we've mentioned before. We're no doubt going to touch on uh, the question that David's already raised of his healthcare interest in adopting generative AI and large language models. Um, that's definitely the talk of the town at the moment. Thank you, Amy, for also putting the link to the report, which you can download, uh, which is available within the links, uh, within the, the comments here on LinkedIn. Also, when you're listening or watching this episode afterwards too on the podcast available in the show notes. Um, Michelle's asked a, a great question in relation to um, interoperability, some of the challenges that healthcare systems might have um, particularly if they've got some of their own systems versus, um, you know, other ones. But we can dive into that in a second. But I actually want, so, so I encourage anyone that's watching live across any of the platforms, put your question in, we can put it up on the, the screen and discuss it uh, here within the, the conversation and, and get a mention on the podcast recording that comes out later too. So the, um, just back to this point that, that was um, already kind of touched on, which um, I guess had the flavor of, of staffing and people. We were talking about clinical workforce for a second there and in, in, in relation to the burnout point, which is certainly an aspect. But I think about this capability and the need to do some of this analytics that we're talking about, Robbie, where you know, on one hand, you need the data to be interoperable so you can do the analytics, but you need the people and the workforce and the capability to be able to do that too. And I think somewhere within this report as well, uh, some of the findings are around, you know, that. Uh, organizations feel that the just having the lack of skills was it was a challenge in in adopting some of these um, this analytics capability and then either didn't have the skills and or didn't have the budget so um, you know given those are the challenges like how how do healthcare systems realistically some address some of these so I mean training is the way to address these things the technologies are new um, 
HL7 Australia by the boost in um, the the May 23 budget from federal budget funding um, is uh, to support the Australia Australian Fire Management Framework um, is for the governance of the, um, the the fire standard in Australia. So through um, HL7 Australia in conjunction with the CSIRO, the Australian Digital Health Agency, um, we're running um, fire connectathons, and the purpose of the fire connectathons is to get a deeper understanding uh, at, at the, the developer level of how to create solutions using fire. In addition to that, we have um, the Sparked Community um, Program, which is to accelerate the uh, use and you know, national rollout of Australian specific fire standards. So it's, it's got to be about education. And, and the thing is that organisations need to, they need to support these kinds of programs. And by support, I mean, they need to make time for you know, the staff to go and train, to go and understand. The technologies are new. And, you know, if they don't go and learn the new processes, the new technologies, the new systems, learn what's available, learn how to, you know, what's good for their organisation, it's going to be very difficult. So it needs support across the board. So, the, you know, HL7 Australia is uh, doing one part of it by the Connectathons and the Spark. Um, the Spark Community Program, but it needs more than that. It needs the participation of the industry across the board. Mm. It's not just for technical people. It's for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, so InterSystems is one of the founding members of the Spark Fire Accelerator. Um, and I think it's really um, a, a wonderful thing and I encourage people to be part of it. As you said, Robbie, it doesn't just have to be um, specific to industry, but to make this work in Australia and to have truly interoperable healthcare, uh, we need to have um, this foundation. And it's kind of ambitious as well because FIRE is now a standard that's been around. It was created here in Australia by Graham Greve, for those who don't know, um, 10 or 11 years ago, I think. Um, and it's ma it made its way over to the US predominantly. It's in multiple places around the world. But um, they had the Argonaut program, which is akin to what we have here for Sparks. And that mm -hmm. took several years, I think five or six, maybe even longer, uh, and we're trying to do basically the same thing in the next couple of years. We have an advantage in a lot of the hard work is, um, has, been, has been done in other parts of the world and we're not trying to change everything, but it still is a challenge that requires this, uh, you know, uh, community involvement really, really everywhere. Yeah. It is important to bring those different stakeholders together and, and take that kind of, um, you know, maybe a staged approach or, or, or a methodical approach to this because if I think about you know, from the perspective of healthcare leaders, particularly those that were, um, you know, asked for their feedback in, in this particular report, you know, the, there's people want to see change in their existing data mechanisms, but it's, it, it, it's you know, to do standardisation and real-time access and improve workflows. Work it can be, you know, overwhelming. It needs something of a of a strategy behind it. It's not something that you can kind of just do. Like, where do you start with this kind of thinking from from a healthcare leader's perspectives in um, perhaps methodically implementing some of these, Andrew? Yeah, um, there's. A, I think where you start, there's going to be um, contextual. So depending on your organisation, and maybe it's different for a greenfield compared to an established. Uh, 
uh, company. But yep. the um, you know, one of the key things here is that it doesn't have to be uh, a complete um, you know um, rip and replace a migration. That's the thing. Um, absolutely. So I think the um, there are other um, options. And and whilst you know, a full, let's just start from scratch and and replatform or whatever it might be. Um, can make sense in some contexts. So um, one um, great example that we have uh, within the systems here is PainCheck. So another one of our, our partners that have a, a really clever um, app that allows you to take a, a photo, a short video of somebody and determine, you know, using a scientific rating scale, how much pain they're in. And PainCheck has been very successful in the aged care market, particularly where people might have trouble communicating or are nonverbal. Um, and so this this does help in a number of ways, including not over medicating or under medicating, and you know, patient experience and and um, you know quality at kind of end of life and things like that. So, um, but they are by no means legacy. They are uh, by no means not modern. They have a you know cloud based mm. system that's uh, I think they've been around six or seven years. Um, and so when they were thinking about entering the, the hospital um, space and having to deal with HL seven and fire and other um, data formats. They came to us and we had a, a conversation around, well, what if we could help you keep all the great stuff that you've got, but mm -hmm. by creating a, um, call it an integration hub or a wrapper so that any EMR out there um, can be, uh, can have data flowing between your system and theirs and, and vice versa. Um, so I think there's there's also opportunity here to to reuse um, what you've already got without having to you know throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, what, what I wanted to say to this, and I think this probably, um, touches on Michelle's question a bit earlier. Um, look, these are, some of these are very, very complex, large scale systems. You're not going to make them all interoperable at once. You, you know, there's just too much to do. So what you need is a very staged approach to it, a way to migrate. And, and the first step of that is really cloud enablement, whether that's a public cloud or like inside a private cloud. You know, you need a way to effectively take the existing systems, and I, I don't mean, you know, you can't just take a system, put it in a VM, chuck it on the cloud, and all of a sudden it's, you know, there it is, it's cloud enabled. That's that's not the way you do it. Right. When I say that, you know, what we do is we, um, we cloud enable this system by creating a cloud layer with APIs that effectively give them the opportunity at their own leisure, at their own pace to migrate to the cloud system by system. But by doing that, now they, you know, all of the other systems can connect to their cloud-based APIs. Um, and it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. They replace or they don't replace or they migrate slowly and it can be manageable, cost-effective, that sort of way. The Talking Health Tech podcast has evolved a lot over the years, all based on audience feedback. Now I need your help, yes you, to shape the future of this show. Between now and the end of June, we're running our biggest campaign to date in order to understand what makes the global healthcare ecosystem tick. Last time we ran our Talking Health Tech audience survey, we learnt 40% of our audience are clinicians, 77% of our audience tune in for professional development and market awareness, 8% of people listen to Talking Health Tech for competitor profiling, and only 2% of people listen to the podcast to fall asleep. And this time around... I can't wait to find out about your preferences for audio versus video content, which topics we should dive into more, preferences for hosts and formats and geographical reach and so much more. And don't worry, we'll be sharing all the insights once all the responses are collected as well.
So if you're a supporter of Talking Health Tech and you can spare five or 10 minutes, please complete our 2024 audience survey. And to say thanks for your input, everyone who completes the survey goes into the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of credits towards THT Plus membership. Go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey or the links in the show notes of this episode as well. Yeah, I think one other um, kind of point around this, uh, we were talking about um, staffing challenges before, and, and there is more material in the um, in the paper around that. And I don't think anyone who's tried to hire staff in the last few years mm. would argue it's been you know, quite a challenge, um, for, you know, obviously with, with COVID um, and people offshore skills not being able to come in. And then yeah. um, it really is just hard to find people with that um, mix of clinical and um, technical or technical and business, you know, that combination of skills that uh, allow them to, to be effective in this sort of area, let alone the, um, the costs and maybe not having budgets. So I think what you were saying, Robbie, about having um, education and training, a lot of that has stepped up in this country, mm. but it's still... Um, early stages. So one of the things that you can do is at kind of at the beginning of this process is just to do an organizational readiness assessment. And I remember a few years ago, we were uh, implementing, um, uh, it was an EMR program actually. And uh, the, 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 the team on the customer side um, took a pause in the early stages of discovery to say, hey, we actually don't have a good handle on exactly what our challenges are around data and digital literacy. Um, and there were, what they found was some people who weren't even familiar with email, um, heavily reliant on SMS. So if the next day you're going to turn on a fully electronic system or 12 months, 18 months, those people are going to be, uh, they're going to need help to get onto that, that journey. So just, just like, you know, as a sort of a analogy, um, I've seen uh, over my career, a company will create a brand new, something really quite generationally transformative product. And it will change the way things work. And they'll put it into an organization and they'll come back, you know, a month later to see what it is. And it's in the cupboard, turned off, you know, because nobody knows how to use it. It's just different. It doesn't matter how how you beauty it is. Mm. It's got to fit in. And by fitting in, there needs to be the, the process to train people to use it, to, you know, make it part of the workflow. It's it's really not useful otherwise. Yeah. So the training is critical. Yeah. You know, and I guess this, I think you referenced Michelle's point earlier, and I think we've touched on a lot of that already as, you know, where she's um, asking if the part of the, the problem of interoperability is that sites and organisations all kind of have their own systems that don't talk to each other and, um, you know, they often the issue is seen as the, the cost of buying products. I think that that speaks to, um, and her question is, how do we change that thinking so that organisations understand the value of easy on interoperability? I think coming back to that point that you mentioned just then, Robbie, around workflow and, and what fits in and the, the training and, and enablement there, those are really important. Any other points, any other que- um, points that we wanted to, to raise on that particular question? Yeah, I think the um, so it's, if it's as much creating the um, the business case or understanding the value uh, for something like fire, um, obviously uh, there is a cost to interoperability, um, mm. and particularly there's a there's a cost if everybody's doing different things, right? So from an organisational perspective, whilst fire might be something relatively new and and it's an investment that needs to be undertaken, um, you know, largely there will be amounts of 
what we do today in terms of interoperability that hopefully can be reduced and minimised, mm. um, i.e. cost out um, by, by moving to standards like this. What he said, basically. <laughs> I guess, you know, I, you know the, yeah. the standardisation, it, like it just comes down to the systems need to be talking the same language. We're not going to get any of the data flowing otherwise. That's what standards-based communication is. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, organisations need to see at the end of the day how it'll be a cost optimization, how it will be of value to the patient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and coming back to getting started with that, I mean, the as I said, the other standards aren't necessarily going away tomorrow. So just because you pick fire doesn't mean that that's going to be the only mm. thing that you can you'll be able to work with, but um, we have an example uh, I found out recently um, of a, one of the very first HL seven, which is the predecessor um, to to Fire. Um, that one of the very first HL seven interfaces was built on an InterSystems platform here in nineteen eighty seven or eighty eight, something like that. And it's still running today. Right. Yeah, it runs on our latest um, tech, obviously, but <laughs> yeah. it's, it, those things can be around for a, for a very, very long time. So being able to yeah. you know, choose a vendor that allows you to operate with the old and the new and not have that become your burden, um, constantly trying to manage these things is, is important. Mm. I think part of it is, um, and that, that's a very good point, um, you know, something, when, when some of these older systems were first rolled out, it was a case of, we're developing the system, here's the communication, it's set in stone, it's never gonna change, so we'll just do it like this and it's done. And, you know, 10, 20 years later, whatever it is, it's still the same. But we're, we're kind of, we're, we're progressing from that. We want to be able to take advantage quickly of new technologies, new ideas, new ways of doing things, because we're building on top of each other. The communication standard, the fire standard, that's just like the, the, the first step. You know, we need to be able to build on that to innovate and innovate more. Um, and so the concept of having it set in stone and now it's never going to change, we're past that or we should be past that. Mm -hmm. and, and that needs to be understood. You know, the, the value, again, to the patient of being able to really take advantage of new systems, stuff that is in the university today, you know, AI-based um, systems, all sorts of things, new sorts of uh, sensor devices, these can only be taken advantage of if you can bring them into the workflow. Again, these 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 themes come together all the time. So um, things like HL7, yeah, that's a really good example, that 1987 one, and mm. I can just see that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I, and I think, mm. sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say, I, I, probably a good time to reference. I can see here in the, the comments on LinkedIn, Andrew Jahal has mentioned that his experience in collating um, we're getting into into the weeds here, but we can do that because we've got Robbie here to help us. Right. So the uh, so implementing systems like inpatient bed systems with different PASs and patient flow systems are all kind of HL7 integrations. And there, uh, these, these systems um, have different electronic discharge summaries and they become a source of truth for ADT data. Yeah, we're getting into the weeds now. But they're they're all they're not well defined for secondary reporting purposes and end up out of sync with the feeding systems. Fire might be an opportunity to solve some problems, but um how do I have my system update when the fire model changes? That's um interesting. Well that's that's a great point actually both both of those things. So that's kind of not only uh, being able to deal with the old and the new, and not that become not become not having that become your problem. Mm. Right? So, you know, InterSystems as a vendor, we put a lot of effort and time into our 
products to allow for those transformations to take place um, and to, to help you deal with data um, from the you know, eight or seven standards all through to whatever else you might want to use. Now, um, I think Andrew is raising an, another point here around the secondary uses of the data. Um, it's also interesting that um, HL7 and, and FHIR don't follow, um, you know, they're more of a, a JSON or an XML or a document type um, uh, of data structure, which is for business analysts and people who want to use, um, you know, uh, things like Tableau or ClickView or mm. Power BI, you know, they're not looking at, at, at that type of data. So you do need to find vendors that are, um, I think you gave a good example before where um, the data is uh, obviously messages that's, that's flowing around. It's going to be um, transformed and, and, and transformed in such a way that it's going to be consistent. The data is then available for these secondary uses. You know, it's a foundation for machine learning and AI, really. Um, you don't want to have to be then going having additional investments to go and start dealing with that stuff. It's mm. really good if it's kind of one um, thought out um, process. Absolutely. Mm. And, and just, just to add to that, um, HL7 as uh, a messaging system is very much a uh, you know the the concept is like a subscription to a message system. So if you miss it, it's gone. So there is no secondary use un unless you're storing it then and there. And so modern systems need to be able to store the data for the secondary use. Absolutely, yeah. Hey, look, we've also got uh, another question uh, from Andy. It's funny, we've got Andrew on the panel here. Andrew Jehovah asked a question. Andy is what you don't need to be an Andy to ask a question or engage in this conversation, by the way. Put a question or a comment on LinkedIn and we can, um, or on YouTube or, or Facebook, even if you're watching live, and we can address those uh, questions and comments there, even if you're not. Andrew affiliated in any way. Uh, but Andy Ellis, a great, great point as well, which I think touched on something that came out of the survey too, which is around um, meeting, well, it touches on that government requirements point, but probably a broad issue around stakeholders within healthcare and, and engaging them. You know, when you're trying to provide data sharing or data exchange across systems and governments and social services and different parts of the healthcare sector, in Andy's example, it's in New Zealand, there's, there's problems around politics and, and, and that gets in the way where agencies might not be interested in, in working together. It's not a priority. Uh, so, so that can be difficult to, even though technically you're able to then share the data, there's, there's not that willingness from the participants to do that and wondering if the panellists um, face any similar challenges to that as well. Uh, I certainly have. Yeah. And, and <laughs> like, let me... Uh, Thank you, firstly, for being called Andrew. I think that's been useful in this conversation. <laughs> but uh, Andy, the, um, uh, it's not just between agencies. So I've seen this in particular parts of the world where it can be in the same agency or the same company and it's really just two mm. department leaders building empires based on you know, information. Non-sharing is, is power. Um, and I, I don't have any good answers for that apart from how you deal with your organisational structure. Um, and trying to eliminate those those barriers, but but um, inside of uh, you know the domain I'm more familiar with these days, Australia, um, and certainly New Zealand, I think you know the the um, the message here is very clearly that um, to deliver healthcare in this country, it, the data has to be be becoming open. Um, there's a uh, a movement towards having all of the healthcare data getting into the My Health record, and mm. and everyone moving towards fire. Um, so at least hopefully, um, you know, some things are changing. But I think it, it really does need um, government support, both the carrot and the stick. It does. Um, I was going to add to that. I think 
and again, I'm, I'm repeating what I said before. You need to frame it in terms of um, optimization, patient outcomes, and, and, you know, I mean, patient outcomes ultimately, beneficial patient outcomes, and, and you know, the, the component there to address sort of maybe some of the shortcuts, uh, financial considerations. You know, the optimization will make things financially beneficial, and that would be a very good way. Mm. Um, Andy's put a follow-up to, and to your point. It's also between <laughs> technology providers as well, not just in those yeah. different stakeholders. Yep. Yep. Um, Joseph, who's not an Andrew, has uh, also um, asked a good question to probably for, for Robbie, as you've said, and actually intersystems as well as across uh, industries. Um, do you find that the health workforce are more resistant to change than other workforces such as finance? Um, so the health workforce is heavily regulated. The processes are burdensome. Um, and so in, in my knowledge with, uh, you know, medtech startups, it, it's about uh, regulatory compliance. Mm. The, the overhead is significant. Effort needs to be put into that. And if, you, if you're starting a company and you're coming out with a class two medical device and you need to get certification around the world, you're going to be focusing your dollars and cents and all your resources on that. And so, you know, now almost distracting, and I, I didn't want to use that word because it shouldn't be, mm. um, to something that is adjacent to your core business is problematic. And, and so, you know, this is the thing. Um, it, it's the sort of, for our business, uh, as, you know, interoperability um, uh, specialists, we, we find that's like a, a, you know, a good thing and a bad thing. So it, it's not the core business for our customers. So what that means is that, you know, it's not usually in their interest to build up a team internally that can understand the nuances of, you know, open standards, mm. let's just say. I mean, they can, but, you know, they've probably, you know, got better things to do. But the flip side to that is because it's not their core business, then they're also not spending time on, looking at that, they do it as they need to, mm. almost. Mm. So we, we need like, a, a, a again, an overall overarching um, kind of a, you know, reason to be interoperating. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, from my perspective, I would say um, it feels like the healthcare industry is quite often behind. Um, but I, I, from as a person, as a patient, I understand that, you know, there's a element of um, a huge element of patient arm and, and patient risk in adopting things um, haphazardly or without understanding the implications so um, I I think there might it might uh, manifest as a resistance to change um, but as Robbie said you know there's there's regulation and then there's the real implication of what if we um, you know took some AI model and didn't understand exactly how it was operating and and um, you know we provided patient advice that led to you know really poor outcomes so I think that that element will always be there for healthcare yeah uh, let me give one more example to this and this this actually it, it's it's very similar to the you know putting it in the cupboard story because it, it's a, a similar sort of a thing this is working quite a long time ago for um, one of Australia's airlines and we were introducing a, a a new system that did like the, the current day monitoring of air traffic. And the notion was, so, so basically the story was that they turned it off and put it in the cupboard. But the reason there was they felt it was taking away jobs. 
And there, there may be some of that going on. Look, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. Mm. Um, and if we, you know, we need to address that kind of a, you know, uh, thing as well. Yeah, I think there's a um, um, an element here around the change management that can be um, talked about a bit as well. And so there's, I, I heard an interesting story from um, Dr. Sankal Kana at um, CSIRO, the Australian eHealth Research Centre recently. Um, and the example was they were able to, in a particular um, uh, algorithm that they'd worked on and had the research around, they were actually able to predict um, patient outcomes, um, deterioration, I believe it was. And so they had a lot of resistance to getting this model adopted. And there was all of the care things that we've talked about um, behind that. So they ended up saying, well, rather than predicting what's going to happen to the patient, why don't we take an established model, which was between the flags, that everybody understood and knew, and what we'll do is we'll just predict what the movement is on that scale sooner. And everybody understood that. It was already a, a given thing. They were just getting the answers a little more quickly than you would on the um, normal scale. So it's effectively doing the same thing, but one step towards um, getting to where you go might be some kind of compromise like yeah, that. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. I've got some good comments and questions coming through on the chat too. So if you're on LinkedIn and I've got something to share, by all means, drop it in live and we can address those if you're attending live. If you're watching the recordings, keep those um, comments going in through and we'll keep the conversation going. I can see here uh, Richard, a, a rural GP, has raised that um, you know, often rural doctors have have several systems in one region or health complex, and navigating that is an issue. But also, he's mentioned age and literacy is is yeah. a challenge too. So that's that's something there. Um, you know, Michelle has has you know added as well to the conversation we're having before. Often, also in healthcare, we're asking already overworked people to do additional tasks for for something that they don't see the benefit of. Um, so, so I guess that that buy-in and getting that the the um, those participants um, understanding the what we're we're doing and, and the elements of co-design are really important there too. Yeah, and I think also just to realise that you um, you know, you have technology vendors and strategic partners that you work with uh, all the time, and and they may not be working with you in that area, but they may have answers and experience. They may have people who can help um, contribute yeah. to those problems. Um, and particularly, you know, with intersystems, um, not just the you know the wonderful people that we have on our team, but we have a, an incredibly good um, partner community with the likes of, of Robbie and the FST team. So you just don't know, and I think people should leverage that um, power inside the um, the vendor as much as they can. Yeah, and, and look, you know, just um, again coming from some of our background, we're, we're very used to holding hands for customers for years, years after uh, you know we do any kind of work. It, it should be very normal. Yeah. I can see here uh, Benoli has raised that even if we get, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I'll put the comment up on the screen for those watching, that even with getting the interoperability right and all the agencies work together and we share the data, there's, there's still limitations, Benoli says, on the uh, how main identifiers are selected for secure messaging validation and and a lack of awareness on data sets that need to be shared for for making the systems interoperable um, and this is related to electronic discharge summary delivery so I, I guess there's lots of once we, even when we get all of the the bits and pieces aligned having that that knowledge and the capability is going to be Absolutely. really important too yep. um 
we've mentioned a few times in this discussion and it came up uh, way earlier in the chat too from David's asked about, you know, the, the adopting generative AI and large language models and we've touched on it throughout this conversation too. But um, I, I think it, it would be remiss of us not to, to dive into it in a bit more detail and I'm sure those that are watching live might have additional comments or questions, so please do share that. Um, but but the I guess that's... Um, that's what we're we're working towards here, I guess, is that you know if if we want to do um, these uh, uh, next generation things with artificial intelligence to hopefully address some issues around um, the the workforce not having the capability to do like the, the capacity, I should say, to um, address patients. If we want to introduce artificial intelligence, we've got to get the the data uh, in the right format and, and use it properly, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the um the, the research does also talk a bit about the adoption of, of fire. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some interesting um, statistics in there. I think there's 13% um, uh, uh, of people claim to be using fire um, today. Um, and that sort of feels about right. Um, there's 13% uh, who are undecided as to whether or not they'll use um, fire. 17% say no, and the rest um, are evaluating. But it's the 17% who are saying they won't use fire. That's um, kind of mm. an interesting um, situation. So yeah. um, certainly, as it relates to um, you know getting to that point where we have quality data that can be trusted and we can use AI, um, uh, more AI and machine learning, um, we really do need to figure out why is it that um, some companies and some people feel strongly about not using. Um, something like fire, and that, that's just one example. There, are obviously, outside of healthcare, there are many other um, things. But some, some, a couple of examples I've heard recently uh, as to why you know when, uh, somebody might not be interested in fire is these um, standards have uh, have have um, you know they they tend to come and go. Uh, it's going to be a large investment for me. Why would I um, mm. uh, bother spending money on that? Um, so it's kind of like an apathy, you know, um, here we go again, um, type thing. Uh, and the other one is this, what I call the last mile. So, um, you know, my, I've built a great app and rightly, you know, as a health tech, I'm focused on making sure that app does exactly what it does. It delivers the, the clinical outcomes or the, 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 the fiscal outcomes that people are looking for. Um, but then getting that into production and into the client environment can be the, you know, the tricky part. It's the last mile. And sometimes the approach is to say, hey, I've got an API. And the customer, that's your problem to figure out how to get to my API. That part there can be very challenging for the customer, right? And that can make it um, our project can sit, um, you know, not ready to go into production because that hasn't happened. You know, obviously, for the health tech, you're not getting the cash flow from the, um, the, the product being implemented. Uh, so I think the there will be um, organizations, health techs in particular, that embrace that and say, hey, it's more of a you know, like pain check. We're going to start chipping away at that to allow your um, interoperability problems, we're going to take on some of that for you. And when I think when that happens, you'll see more of those companies that are then um, safely um, and with consent um, aggregating data and it's going to have a, a standardised format, they'll be in a really good position to be starting to adopt uh, and utilise and get the buy-in for things like generative AI. Yeah. Um, a couple of things. Um, the, the trust with data... I, um, privacy and security considerations can't, should be obvious, they can't be understated. Um, and maybe there needs to be more emphasis on those, you know, talking about what, you know, how, how is the, the data 
you know private so so in one case where one customer where we they're introducing a, a mobile um, app it needs to talk into a hospital um, it needs to get data to to be able to initiate a particular process but it's a cloud-based service so um, can they get like the list of patients from the hospital you know is that is that a thing so that's something they're working through but if we could solve um, you know solve that problem fundamentally where there's no question that the data is private no question and, and it's a given now mm. so that will facilitate the uptake even more uh, the other thing to say here uh, Robbie is that it's already happening um, I think people um, in fact, I saw Bruno Braga at the Marta uh, was at the conference I was at this week and gave a wonderful um, presentation. And um, I will paraphrase some of the things that I remember hearing about what he said. But the reality is that people are already doing this. They are already using things like ChatGPT and other um, technologies in their organisation. They're experimenting. And he, he said, in some ways, that's heartwarming to see these interesting, um, curious minds playing with this stuff. So. They obviously very quickly got out a policy around, you know, safe use um, and um, and gave people real examples of, of, how, of how to do it. But it is a, uh, I think it's more of a situation of accepting that this is going to happen, it's going to be happening. So, again, it comes back to education, mm. um, putting the guardrails up um, and, and helping people understand what they're doing um, and how to do it safely. Yeah, absolutely. I can see some more comments and uh, and more just agreements in, in the chat there too. And I encourage anyone that is watching live to leave any kind of final thoughts because we might start to to round out from, from both of you uh, just based on the discussion we've had on reflecting on, uh, you know, the the results here and the, the, um, uh, the, the report that's available to download. It's in the comments I can see here and also in the podcast. So um, I guess final thoughts or even perhaps recommendations to, um, you know, healthcare leaders that might be considering uh, implementing or what to do with this information and where to from here um, and any kind of final comments. I might start with you, Andrew. Sure. Um, I think to go kind of way back to the beginning around yeah. the data strategy, um, Definitely being aligned, having um, your investments and your data strategy, use of data, um, all connected up to organisational objectives and mm -hmm. I think is very, very important. Um, you know, if you are on a path of, let's say, building a single data repository, um, just validating that that is still the thing that's going to help you with your, um, your, your objectives overall. Um, I'd say we've talked about um, vendor relationships and partner relationships, I think, um, picking a uh, technology partner that has a rich um, ecosystem and can bring more than just technology um, to your projects because these are rarely just about the technology. It's got to be, you know, how, how, how the partnership brings um, the right sort of skills, people, um, extended relationships, know-how, all this kind of stuff around um, uh, what you're doing I think is, is really important. Um, and I'm obviously biased, but I think an organisation that has a very strong healthcare focus um, mm. is is critical. Like yourselves, um, Robbie, I think that is something that that allows that company to continue to build um, their expertise and knowledge, um, and can bring that to the table um, each time that they're consulted. And then, just personally, I think you know we should be 
optimistic about this stuff. This is this is um, by no means a um, you know a set forget. It's we, we've done it for the second year now, and I'm mm. sure we'll we'll do it again for another year. But it's showing progress, and I think we are demonstrating that as an industry, things are changing, and we are adopting um, the, uh, the the things that are headed our way. Um, and uh, yeah, just be optimistic and, and be proud of what we have achieved, and be um, look forward to the future as well. Yeah, um, I'll add to that. Uh, so I agree. We absolutely have to be optimistic. There, there's no other way to really go about it. Um, I think we need to look at the big picture, and and the big picture is that overall, as a nation, we we want to be investing in the health of our population. There, there really should be no other way to look at it. That that's you know we want a healthy population, mm. and to achieve that, we need a whole lot of different pieces put into place. And you know, fire, as I said before, it's a stepping stone. It's one part of it. It's the first part. It's the part where we get the different systems to talk to each other. We've got a long way to go, and we have so much potential here in Australia to, to achieve mm. that. So I think that's really important to keep our eyes, as you said, on the goal at the end. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a nice way to wrap it up. I think that, um, you know, we've had some great engagement from those that are attending live. So thank you to to Charles and David and Andrew and Andrew and Andrew and Michelle and, and many others, uh, Benoli as well, the, and Bernie, thank you for, for contributing there. Um, I encourage anyone to, to continue the conversation going in the chat too if you're watching the recording and um, you know, you'll be able to access uh, this episode in a few weeks on the Talking Health Tech podcast too. Uh, but uh, well, let's leave it there. Andrew, Robbie, I really appreciate you making the time to have a chat. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end of this episode. If you made it this far, you're the perfect person that I want to hear from. Our THT Plus audience survey is now open until the end of June, and I personally read every submission. In fact, if you leave a comment in the survey that you heard this promotion in a podcast episode, I promise I'll reply directly to you by email with a personal note of thanks, and I'll even buy you a coffee next time I see you in person. It's pretty easy. Just go to talkinghealthtech.com survey and have your say. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Health Tech. Make sure you like and subscribe and share this episode with someone who might find it valuable. For more information and resources about healthcare innovation, visit TalkingHealthTech.com.